Tim Trudgeon. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me, Justin. Well, let's go through your academic background first. Let's give us some of your degrees. What's the list? Uh, well, I was uh, born and grew up in Brisbane, and I went down to Canberra in 2002 to do my undergraduate degree, the Bachelor of Science. And then through the generosity of the John Monash Foundation and through just the sheer blind luck of being given a Guernsey, I went over to England in 2006 and did my PhD over there. I got married over there, which was a lot of fun, uh, and then moved to, uh, my wife and I moved to Canada for a couple of years where I had a posting. Um, My first son was born there. Then we moved back to Canberra in 2012, where we've been ever since. Um, and uh, our second son was born here. And it's uh, it's a real delight to kind of start the academic career, if you like, in Canberra and to finish it up in Canberra. It's, it's great to be back. Talk me through your application to be a John Monash Scholar. What was that like? Yeah, it was, uh, let's say, serendipitous. So uh, some people have very clear goals in mind. And they worked very hard for those goals. And I guess I had in my mind, not a very well-formed idea, but I had in my mind that uh, I wanted to go to Oxford. And not because, you know, um, I mean, my parents didn't go to university. So what, what, what do I know about universities? But when you're young, you see some movie and, you know, there's some bloke, some random old white dude who's, you know, drinking port, needing chocolate and playing cricket. And I thought I could aspire to that. I could aspire to eat chocolate, drink port, and I played a lot of cricket as a boy, so why not? So why not do what fancy people do and go over there? And of course, like any place, they, they charge you through the nose if you're a foreign student, so the only way you're getting there is if you're getting a, a Guernsey with a scholarship. So I said, okay, well, I've got to apply, um, let's apply, um, and that was a fairly painless process. You put the application in, and then, okay, you sweat it out, interviews, and so on, but uh it's somewhat remarkable. I remember reading a uh, reading a transcript of an interview with Thomas Keneally, the Australian author, um, and he said, "Looking at your past for an author, looking at your past uh, works is kind of like looking at your past love letters. It's very embarrassing. You say, oh, I wrote that. What a clown!'" So when I looked back at you know, some article or whatever, some clipping my mum kept about my uh, the job application or something. I think, oh man, how green was I? Uh, um, the fact that they gave me that, they must have felt sorry for me. I mean, that was what I wrote was so pitifully weak. But you know, these were the early days. That's the time to get in on the scholarship, nice and early. Now everyone's got you know, university medals and so on. So I got in early when it wasn't so popular. That's the way to do it. So. Um, yeah, it was pretty good. I mean, I, I didn't have a supervisor when I went over to Oxford. Uh, I didn't... Did you know what you were doing? Yeah, broadly speaking, yeah. So I had a um, I had a, a very kind professor at university who um, saw I had some game and said, why don't you go over and study with this bloke? Now, I didn't know who this bloke was. Um, I started out at university, I guess, wanted to do astrophysics or something, and realized that it wasn't really for me and physics wasn't really for me and mathematics was kind of the last man standing. So this uh, professor of mine said, well, you seem to show some aptitude. Why don't you go over here? I said, yeah, okay, fine, why not? So anyway, I applied to go over there. Um, and there were three permanent faculty at the time at Oxford. There's, there's many more now. Um, and the team, if you like, accepted me. Um, and they, But maybe they didn't think I was going to come over or something, but they, the three accepted me. And uh, but I didn't have an actual supervisor, so when I wrote down what am I supposed to do, 
went over there and they said, oh, look, spend a week with each of us and we'll um, try to convince you to come and do your PhD with us. So talk with the first bloke. Uh, They're all blokes. Talk with the first bloke um, couldn't, for a week, couldn't understand what he was talking about. Talk with the second bloke for a week, couldn't understand what he was talking about. And I was kind of like this third bloke, the senior fella, you know, fancy guy, let us after his name and whatever. Um, he was like the last man standing. So I worked with him for a week and I could kind of understand some of the words, you know, prepositions, definite articles, that sort of thing. I understand some of the words that he was saying. And I thought this is probably as a default, this will do. And you could tell in his eyes he was disappointed. You could tell that that he thought, what are they teaching you over there? You know, people do a degree in England uh, in mathematics, say. That's all they're doing. They're only doing mathematics. And so my contemporaries over there had studied so much more than me. They ran rings around me. And this guy thought, who is this guy from some random colonial outpost who claims to be clever enough and is clearly out of his depth? Um, I mean, skipping forward a bit, uh, I really enjoyed my – time there and I got to know and to respect and to be good friends with my supervisor. So every time we, we, I, I go to England about once a year or so, I give some lectures and seminars and so on. Um, absolutely, I stay with him in his cottage just outside of Oxford and we I buy him a, a duty-free bottle of whiskey and we knock the top of it, knock the top off it one night. Um, and we start with good intentions. We start about saying, do you hear this colleague went there and so on? And after a while, we kind of degenerate into you know, slagging off mathematicians we don't like. This guy's rubbish. Uh, but anyway, it's good times. And he it, only when I started taking my own PhD students did I realize how excellent a supervisor this guy was. At the time, I thought he was exceptionally frosty. Uh, you didn't get any praise out of him. You'd, you'd get a manuscript ready for submission, and you'd think it was up to snuff. You'd pass it to him, and he'd say, well, it's not terrible. And that was kind of high praise from him. And so that was sort of chipping away at you. And at the time, I thought, well, okay, this is not very you know, cuddly. Um, but only after I left and started with my own students, I mean, I'm, I don't have that kind of uh, approach, but only then did I discover all the other things that he was teaching me along the way, all the other things about how he was introducing me to the field, how things ought to be done, and how you ought to conduct yourself as a mathematician. And that, those kind of like ancillary skills often get dumped by the wayside because people are only interested in oh, what papers did you write or whatever. But those sort of skills of how do you start in a new area? How do you form a long collaboration with someone? How do you how do you talk to someone at a conference dinner table when they've only got five seconds or so? How do you talk to them? You know, these kind of skills which he taught, you had to look hard and look, you know, look astutely, but he taught them. And so, yeah, my time in England was, uh, yeah, absolute joy. So the modern scholarship process, I mean, there are zero universes in which I would have got there without the scholarship. And so, um, yeah, the fact that that I was able to tumble through somewhat blindly uh, and land on my own two feet is partly because of the supervisor, but also because of the foundation. What did you actually study? What was what was the thesis that um, that you produced at the end of your work? Right. So in Oxford, I worked in analytic number theory. So uh, what does that mean? Well, um, I guess from school days, we have this idea of prime numbers, things like two and three and five and seven and so on. So things where if you try to break them down as a product of smaller numbers, you ain't going to do it unless you use that number in one. So you could break down four as two times two, but good luck breaking down five as something times something. The only way you can do that is if you're choosing the numbers one and five. So, uh, okay, two is a prime, three is a prime, five is a prime, and so on. 
You might say, well, okay, two and three, they're primes, and they differ by one. Um, it's not too hard to show that they're the only pair of primes that differ by one, because after a while, one of them's got to be even, and if he's even, you know, by definition, he's got to be divisible by two. So, uh, okay, there's a kind of curiosity. You get a couple of primes low down that are split apart by one. Well, okay, two is a number that's bigger than one. So what about if we look for primes that split apart by two? Now, that's an open question. It's been open since the time of the ancient Greeks. So good luck anyone solving that. So uh, very rapidly, you move from something that any kind of well, – I've got sons who are nine and six. Uh, they're not – uh, particularly interested in mathematics, but uh, you could easily say to someone, uh, you, you can show me that an even number is divisible by two if it's bigger than two. That's a simple thing. So it very rapidly you move from something which is completely trivial, anyone with half an eye and a cork tooth can solve it, to something which is so ghastly difficult that, uh, I mean, no one tries to solve those problems. Everyone tries to break off an exceptionally small chunk and try to shine some light on it. So... Um, yeah, okay. My thesis was about the distribution of primes and various uh, weaponry, various artillery that we can bring to bear to try to say something clever about them. And not clever in the sense of, oh, how clever are we? But to say, these are tough problems. If we're going to make any incremental advance at all, then we're going to have to try to find out what other tools from mathematics we can use that we can borrow beg, borrow, or steal from other cleverer people than us and use those tools to say something at least intelligible, at least ask the right questions. You may not know the answer, but at least jolly well ask the right questions. So yeah, my thesis was on the uh, distribution of primes and some of the weaponry that can be used to attack such questions. Is there such a thing as having a favorite prime number? Uh, it's possible. I mean, I, I, I guess you could say two. I mean, why not? Uh, two is the only even prime number. Um, I'm not especially interested in classing different numbers as being better than others. Some people enjoy that because there are some interesting properties there. Um, there are some interesting properties about numbers that can be written in a certain way. And for some people, they find that exceptionally enjoyable. It's kind of quirky in my mind, but some people find these things exceptionally enjoyable. So, for example, some mathematicians will use the word beautiful um, in my uh, opinion incorrectly, but they'll use it in their opinion definitely correctly because they'll think that a certain equation or a certain number has some sort of transcendent beauty to it. I mean, I'm a kind of a lowbrow fellow. I think um, what a pitiful world we're living in if I find sunsets beautiful and my children smile beautiful and you want to put on an equal playing field with that some number because it's got a bunch of nines in it. I mean, uh, those those things are clearly in different weight categories. We've got a million words in English. Let's use something for those. You're elegant, whatever you like. Yeah, sure. But uh, yeah, sunsets and children's smiles, in my mind, are beautiful. Um, let's not try to uh, over-egg the pudding by saying some scratchings on a blackboard are beautiful. Okay, so let's fast forward to 2020. You're now living and working in Canberra. Tell us about what you're doing at the moment. All right. So I've been on the faculty here at UNSW Canberra, which is the outfit that teaches at the Australian Defence Force Academy. I've been on the faculty here since 2017. Uh, I've got a, a research fellowship. Well, who knows what that means? Roughly, it means that uh, some people in some office somewhere in the government have said that I am supposed to solve some problems. So a normal day for me 
is solving some mathematical problems, reading the literature, solving problems, uh, have some PhD students. Um, uh, they help to solve some problems and they tell me where I've gone wrong, so it's very good to have them around. <laughs> are, they, are they smarter than you? Oh, infinitely so, infinitely so. Um, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I learned very early on that I have an exceptionally narrow range of mathematical talents. Um, I have a pretty good memory, so I can remember stuff you know, better than most. And I read an awful lot, so therefore I can read stuff, I can remember stuff. Um, and so I can remember roughly how to do a problem, or even better, I can remember the textbook, I can remember the page in the textbook where that problem is done. So I don't have to worry my pretty little head about how to actually do the problem. I don't actually worry about what I'm doing. And I'm, it's kind of heresy in the mathematical world because you're supposed to understand all these concepts and so on. But um, that was always too hard for me. So um, my way of carving out a living, I mean, I've got a family, bills need to be paid. The way to carve out a living for me is to use uh, what I consider my strengths, this uh, business of having a memory, to mask what everyone considers to be my weaknesses. My weaknesses are clearly that I don't have a huge handle on a variety of mathematical theories, and I'm okay with that. But the students, the students don't suffer from those inadequacies. The students don't suffer from those weaknesses. The students may not have those same strengths. They may not read as much, may not remember as much, but the students have a different set of strengths, a different set of weaknesses. So that means they are infinitely cleverer than me because they know all these tricks and not tricks in a, in a, in a derogatory way, tricks in a, they know, they know what's going on. They can explain the essence of what's going on where I just say, ah, oh, it's just a thing. We use the thing to do the thing. Let's move on. So yeah, don't worry about that. Absolutely. Yeah. We got to go home. We, you know, we, we got to hit the pub. Let's not worry ourselves about why it's true. Let's just use it. Come on people. So, um, it's 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 nice having well, it's it's it's, well, it's not nice it's it's superb having students around because the energy they bring to a problem um, I mean I'm not an old guy um, but the energy they bring to a problem is very reinvigorating it makes you feel so content that you have some very small almost infinitesimal role you can play on, on their lives but you can play something a non-zero quantity you can play some sort of role in passing on to them how you think mathematics ought to be done, how you think you can collaborate with people, and how you can try to leave the discipline in a better state than when you found it. And that ability to do that with students is, yeah, okay, it takes time, sure. And yeah, fine, sometimes students don't do as much work as you want them to do. I, I did hardly any. For my first year, I was playing cricket up and down England. I played for the university. I was playing cricket up and down England. And at some point, my supervisor said, you know what, Tim, you're going to have to probably do some mathematics at some point. Um, every meeting. <laughs> we, need, we need to talk. Exactly. He said, every meeting, we're starting out. We've got an hour each week. Every meeting, we're starting out. You're spending 45 minutes explaining, you know, with, with jokes and banter and everything else, but explaining uh, how many stumpings you took on the weekend. Uh, that's kind of great, but you're also here to do some studies, so maybe you might want to buckle up. So, um, Right, right. So I was a terrible student, um, but uh, it's uh, good to see students. Uh, I don't want to say students these days. I kind of want to do it. I think students these days are the best students ever. There, I said it. Um, the students these days are the best students ever. They have incomparable advantages of what they can do. Uh, sure, if people squander those, and then, 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 then they're dead to me, right? But uh, the students appreciate the effort you put in, and it's, it's, it's touching. 
to see that that the efforts you put in are respected, appreciated, and these people grow in some sort of lame sense. They grow personally, academically, whatever, as a result of um, the meager advice you happen to give them. So the student becomes the teacher. So you are now taking on PhD students. So what what do you think that you've that you learnt from your initial supervisor uh, that's helping you teach them now and to make you a better supervisor? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. Um, some people. Uh, uh, like to stick the boot in to quote unquote the young people, and I think uh, whenever I hear that, I think, oh, you know, shoot me now. You know, when people say, oh, young people can't count, or young people don't have any grammar, or something, you say, oh, look, mate, just uh, go over there and bang your head against a brick wall, but don't steal my oxygen. We've got a four meter square rule going on here, mate. Just head 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 out, would you? So it's keep your distance. Absolutely, it's the kind of thing that kind of, I don't know. Stupid people say to try to make them out to be clever, or the young people today are no good. Say so. so uh, when I'm thinking about what to do with, quote-unquote, the young people, it's to say, look, I don't really know how you know funky stuff works. You know, Before we came on air, we had some trouble because I didn't know how to update my browser. Okay, so I'm clearly not some sort of tech-savvy dude. So I'm not going to worry about telling them about that. They already know that, right? But I'm going to say to them, uh, very often people will not talk to you about the non-mathematical things going on in your mathematical career. And I don't mean, you know, what what books they're reading, you know, what poetry they're doing or whatever. I'm, the non-mathematical, the non-equations, right? Um, mathematics is a, any science, a, any academic pursuit is a collaborative discipline. And it's the relationships you form in those collaborations that are important. In my mind, almost infinitely more important than the theorems you prove, than the, than the equations you write down. Yeah, fine. You have to do that to get the jobs and so on. But it's the relationships you have with people. Very quickly, one could go into a spiral of, I don't know, uh, goodwill hunting, you know, doing stuff on a blackboard or beautiful mind, you know, just a kind of crazy, this whole... Chasing pigeons around the courtyard. Yeah, yeah. This kind of tortured genius, you know, this old trope that all the best authors, uh, you know, middle-aged white dudes take in their holidays by the sea because of their tortured genius, some wankery like that. So one has to move away from that. That's the way people burn out. That's the way people have nervous breakdowns. That's the way people get turned off from the field. Instead, to embrace the fact that you can form personal relationships with people. So I have a collaborator, multiple collaborators. I have a collaborator in the US and a collaborator in the UK in particular. And I've visited them each about once a year for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. And they visited me, um, and I've seen their kids, in some cases grandkids, grow up. They've seen my kids grow up. When we send emails once a week, yeah, of course, there's mathematics in there, but there's other stuff as well. And you see the connections that you can make. You're part of the family when you're over there. When they come here, they're not staying in some dingy hotel. They're staying at our house. They're having dinner at our house. So you see the connections with people, and that means that when you get stuck on an abstract problem, I mean, mathematics is all abstract. We're not making faster cars or something. I mean, we're not interested in cars. Not because we don't like cars. That's for other people to do, and they're content doing that, and that's not what's exciting for us. So we're doing whatever crazy abstract stuff we're doing, but you've got to anchor that to reality. We're human people. We need human interactions. So my supervisor, for example, getting back to your question, about how my supervisor inculcated this into me, and again, he's a subtle, subtle guy. You got to look, you got to, be, got to be, keep a sharp lookout for it. But he would always um, take us all to the pub 
after a seminar. He would always buy a round of drinks. He would always insist at a conference dinner that we would sit at different tables, for example. It's very easy at a conference dinner just for all the, all the chums at the same place to club together. But he said, no, no, go, go away from me. You know, go meet other people. Um, okay, there are some subtle ways as well, but read, read a lot. Read a lot, ask a lot of questions, but also take advantage of the people around you. I mean, he was a crazy clever guy, as in, you know, fellow of the Royal Society, ooh la la, at the age of like 35 or something. So crazy, uh, winning all the awards ever. And so thankfully, I wasn't in awe of him much because I couldn't really understand what he was talking about. But uh, that's... <laughs> yeah, it always helps. <laughs> that's, the, that's the great beauty. Exactly. That's the great beauty of not being that mathematically clever and that you're not bowled over by someone's impressiveness because you can't understand what they're doing. You just say, okay, he must be clever because everyone else is saying he's clever. So he's a very clever guy. Um, and I guess if he were listening to this, he would say, no, nah, I didn't teach you any of that stuff. Because um, he probably would have thought, no, no, I didn't, I didn't. You've just made that up. Okay, maybe I have made it up. But I'm pretty sure if you looked hard, you could find these things in his teaching style. And even if you didn't, so even if I've all made it up, I've made it up based on all the interactions I've had with him both as a student and now, I don't want to say as an equal. Um, well, he's retired now, which means he's only about 50 times as clever as I am. So he's starting to slowly come down. If he retired for another 58 years, maybe we'll pull on par. But um, it's, it's, it's a delight having those uh, filters, I suppose. What did I learn back in the day? Um, how can I adapt it? To my need, and with anything, you know, you read a book, you read, I don't know, Karl Marx or whatever it is people read. Some stuff's good, some stuff's bad. You ditch the bad stuff, you keep the good stuff. So I ditch the bad stuff from what he uh, taught, and I keep the good stuff, and then, you know, like a sponge, like some sort of non creative sponge, I'll nick all the good stuff from all the good people, throw away all the bad stuff from the bad people, and hopefully what I'm left is like, I don't know, 23 carats of good. I am interested in your take on what is happening at the moment vis-a-vis the spread of the coronavirus. How does a mathematician observe a global health pandemic? Because we've heard all sorts of maths phrases thrown into the mix, into uh, commentary at the moment, flattening the curve, exponential growth, R numbers. You're probably sitting back going, hmm, they're doing this all wrong or, yeah, they've got it right. Like, Give us your take on what you're seeing. Sure. Well, uh, that's an easy one to give um, because uh, I'm not imbued with too much mathematical acumen. So I don't know what an R number is. Something about stats, something about a curve. You know, maybe I learned it once in second year stats, but I've blissfully forgotten it. Um, uh, so when I hear people say, oh, we should do it this way or that way, I often think, you know, easy Easy remarks from the cheap seats, mate. You know, it's not you who's who's the the chief medical officer whose head's on the chopping block. Um, I mean, a- academics are the absolute worst when it comes to this. It, it, not just the coronavirus, with anything, with politics, with taxation, with uh, education, with anything, because they think I'm a clever guy. I've got letters after my name. If only people would listen to me. You know, can't we go back to Plato's Academy where everyone wanted to get into my joint? If only people would listen to me, we'd sort out the whole world's problems. And you say, oh, mate, you know, the kids' table's down there. Help yourself to the fairy floss and party pies. When you're an adult, come back and you can sit at the head of the table with us. 
You know, the rest of us are not interested in trying to tell people, like, like take education, say. People saying, oh, teachers do this, teachers do that. Oh, if only people listen to us mathematicians. Oh, give me a break, please. So because I don't know about epidemiology, statistics, um, population health, human behavior, psychology, economics, I don't know anything about those. Okay, I know as much as the man on the street. I know as much as your local greengrocer or something. But um, – I don't know anything about those, and hence I don't feel the need to discuss those things. Like if you asked me, what do you think about the GDP crisis in the Central African Republic? I'd say, I don't know. I mean, I know that GDP is a thing. Good luck. Yeah, exactly. I know GDP is a thing. Don't really know what it means. Okay, I know what the letters stand for. I don't really know what it means. I know the Central African Republic is a country, and I understand the rest of the verbs and prepositions in your sentence, but why... I don't have an opinion on that. So, yeah, um, I guess the other side of the coin is that's not because I'm a cool guy. You know, some people say, I'm not interested. I couldn't possibly sully my interests in that. It's not that at all. I don't have anything to contribute to that. And I'm perfectly happy letting the very clever people, exceptionally clever people um, who are in, uh, let's say, uh, government, public health, wherever, I'm very happy letting the clever people who are briefed on this, who this is their bread and butter, very content letting them do whatever it is they do. And I always kind of say to my wife, you kick me under the table or just you know stick a fork in my hand, whatever, whatever you need to do at the dinner table if I start mouthing off about how, oh, lousy government, lousy this, that, and the other. So, yeah, I, I, I just prefer to say, well, that's you guys got that under control. Um, yeah, I'm off doing my thing. Yeah, I'm off doing my thing. Uh, if I can contribute, I'm happy to help out. But uh, you guys seem to have this, uh, I don't want to say under control, because this is how you say a global pandemic. So um, it's unclear how that's under control, but the people are doing the things as best they can, and good luck to them. How do we go at maths as a country, Australia? Do we produce um, good mathematicians if we were to try to rank like where we are on any sort of global scoreboard? Where, where does Australia stack up? Uh, yeah, so was, I guess there's two questions there. One, uh, how do we go producing mathematicians? And two, how do we go on a scoreboard? And those two things almost bear no relevance to each other. So there are scoreboards. There are. There's uh, what are they, PISA rankings or something. There are scoreboards, um, just like there are university rankings. And you know, you look at a university ranking and, oh, what a surprise, you know, Oxford and Caltech are up the top. And, oh, what a surprise, Uncle Frank's discount Antarctic University is way down the bottom. But everything in between is just a crapshoot. So, oh, yeah, what a surprise, uh, you know, a country like Singapore, which is five, what, 8 million people in a city-state environment, what a surprise that they're up the top. And what a surprise that, I don't know, uh, um, Transnistria, that isn't even a country. What a surprise that Transnistria is somewhere near the bottom. But everything else, in my mind, looks totally bogus. Uh, and I can't help but think, why are we subjecting ourselves to death by data? You know, if I see another pie chart, I'm going to vomit into someone's kettle. Not into my kettle, because I drink a lot of tea. Vomit in someone else's kettle. Pie charts, data, rankings, percentages. Since when did we hand control over to the technocrats who think – I mean, and what people do with this kind of data is they say, we may know what's going on, but we don't wish to explain to you what's going on. We want to exploit our reverential power and have you say to us, well, I don't really know what's going on, but there seems to be a graph and that seems to look, intersect the y-axis at some point. No one understands what these things are. And so they say, okay, well, you must be right then, whatever. So 
I must say, when I, I go to like a mathematical conference and someone gets up and deplores the state of mathematics in Australia, and I say, "Here we go again. Here we go again." As if, as if we, as if it's ever been like people talk like a STEM shortage. Was there ever a STEM surplus? Were we ever in surplus, or were we just magically in a balanced budget with all the STEM needs we needed for like the last uh, 150 years or something? So the, people say these things like they mean something. They're evacuated of meaning. So okay, getting back to the other part of the question. So the tables and rankings, they can go jump in a lake. I mean, good luck to people carve out a career doing that. You know, that's that's great that they've managed to I don't know pull the wool over everyone's eyes. That's great. But getting back to where do we go? Yeah, we go pretty well. Uh, Every country always likes to have a go at every other country. Why not? Stick the, stick the boot in. Um, I must say, though, I, uh, I like the fact that many of us, at least, don't take education that seriously. And what I mean by that is not that we think it's a joke, but if you compare, say, the Australian uh, – so the, the national curriculum, say – I think is, is one of the best in the world. Why? Because it does not say you must teach this. It gives a loose framework which says you can choose from a jumble in this hodgepodge. And it's put together by clever people. Choose from stuff in here. You go to a place like England, everyone's doing the same stuff. It's, it's all exams. Why are we still doing exams? Jeez. It's all exams. It's all bang, bang, bang. You know, I'm on a Mark Twain bender at the moment. He's talking about growing up in Missouri. Kids going to school. And all they're doing is rote learning stuff. They don't know how to spell the words they read out. They don't know how to think and stop and understand anything. They just know how to read out what's on the sheet of paper. All in the name of chasing kind of, I don't know, bogus tables or something. So I think we do an excellent job. We do an excellent job because we realize there's more to education. There's more to mathematics. There's much more to mathematics than equations. I mean, the last, if I hear people say, oh, it's all equations on a blackboard. I, I happen to love blackboards, by the way. That's a story for another time. But uh, I absolutely can't stand this idea of it's all equations and memorizing, you know, I don't know what square root of two is to 50 places or something. So the, the concept of mathematics in anyone's mind should be solving problems. There you go. Set it in one sentence. Solving problems. Using what? Okay, using numbers and such. Now, that's, that's a good definition for 95% of the population. Mathematicians would hate it because there's numbers and such. Well, what are these such? You know, explain your terms. But for most people, use numbers and such and solve problems. That'll do. But solve problems and have fun when you're doing it. Have fun solving the problems, yeah. But, and, and when one's doing a mathematical education, some of the best uh, lecturers you might get, some of the best teachers you might get are those which turn the problems into a fun game a game to play. Heavens above, no one wants to write down a quadratic equation. I don't want to write it down. I do it for a living. Why would I want to write equations down? I instead want to say, see, oh, this is a fun game I can play. Get people excited about it. Jeez. So how do we do it? Well, we do it pretty well because we've resisted thus far the idea of you must do this and this and this. There's no other way. There's some flexibility. Yeah, okay, it's a weird kind of federated system where the Education's devolved to the states and territories, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so it's not uniform in that sense, obviously. But even inside, you still get the capacity to do different stuff. And of course, some states are different from others. The HSC and the VCE are much more, how you say, uh, heavily streamlined than, say, the Queensland Education or the ACC. Okay, fine, fine. There's small differences. Yeah, whatever. Okay. But still, as a country, I think, um, you know, at, at the War Memorial, there's these uh, pictures, these stained glass pictures about, uh, you know, you're supposed to have, you know, respect, patriotism, whatever. One of the ones is candor, you know, having a good time, having a laugh, not taking yourself too seriously. In the War Memorial, if you don't mind, you know, in this kind of um, holy of holies. So candor, taking yourself not too seriously, realizing that in a school, in a university, there's more going on 
than just, you know, what equations you've got at the back of the book. I mean, this is why, for example, oh, I almost pulled the jack out again. This is why you, um, when you go to university, you're not just doing the degree. You're talking with all the people. You're having discussions. You're being challenged. You're coming at things with a certain perspective, and that perspective is shown to be wrong or partially incomplete or in conflict with someone else's. And it's the same in mathematics. I like stuff that other people don't and vice versa. Okay, well, life's complicated like that. I have to figure out how to reconcile this stuff with that person's stuff. I'm a referee of many journals. I have to figure out, yeah, fine, the equations are correct, but is it worthwhile publishing this stuff? Will anyone care? Does it lead to anything? Good skills to have, and I think that Australia does a pretty good job. I have no idea where we come in the ranking tables, and I honestly couldn't care less. Um, but I think because we don't take ourselves too seriously, I mean, the worst thing is for people to think that by being straight-laced and taking themselves seriously, somehow they're better than other people. They can just... They, they can just take a hike, you know. Uh, it, it, not take yourself too seriously. You can still be serious. You can still be respected and get good work done. But you don't have to strut about like some peacock saying, this is it. You know, it's my way or the highway. So, yeah, I, I think Australia does, does as well as any other place probably better because of our quote-unquote attitude. Okay, before we finish, let's step away from the classroom. I know there are uh, a number of um – passion points for you. There's three of them that I would like a little bit more information on. One is cricket. The second is the opera. And the third is Shakespeare. Go. Ah, well, yeah. Uh, so cricket. All right. Well, uh, I mean, why would anyone uh, wish to uh, play or watch any other sport? Um, I'm perfectly aware that the reasons I want to watch cricket, test cricket, say, are different from the reasons someone, want, someone wants to watch 2020, and that's great. But cricket, you have, one, an immense history of the game. Uh, two, you have battles within battles. You have Glenn McGrath, I'm a child of the 90s, you have Glenn McGrath bowling to Brian Lara, setting him up, setting him up, setting him up. Nothing, quote unquote, nothing's happening, and then he gets him out. It's those mo battles within battles, those moments of a whole day and only a few things, quote unquote, happening, which are so let's say, mouth-wateringly delicious. So, I'm a big fan. I'm a, I love test cricket. Love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 played, for, I played for many years. Um, uh, I've obviously watched since whenever. Um, and I, it, it, great joy. Canberra, we got our first test match in Canberra uh, last year or so. I, I went for three, three of the five days, um, once with some mates, once with both sons, and once with my eldest son. And um, no, but both my boys play cricket. But taking, this, taking the boys there, and saying, um, right, he's put, him, he's put third man deeper. Why would he do that? I mean, it's, it's not a trick question. Why do you think he would do that? Why do you think he's moved the field in? Now, I don't know the answer, but what are some reasons? What would you do? You know, I haven't got a wicket in uh, the last five hours. What would you do? You've got to do something. And then seeing the little minds at work, seeing him tick over and say, okay, you could do this. Yeah, you could do that. Okay, now we have discussions on those discussions. So I guess that, uh, I forget, maybe opera was second, but let's jump to Shakespeare now. The, the discussions within discussions. Um, I know that some people think, oh, okay, Shakespeare, fuddy-duddy, whatever. And there is some kind of barrier. There is a very, in my mind, a small barrier, but there is a barrier for everyone getting involved in Shakespeare. And that barrier is we don't use the words like thine and thine anymore. Okay, fine, but look them up deal with it and move on. So um, you don't need to have uh, a fancy upbringing to appreciate it. You don't, need, you don't need to know what an intricate Roman history to understand what's going on in Julius Caesar. 
You, know, you, don't, you don't need to know about anti-Semitism to get something out of The Merchant of Venice. Of course, if you knew about anti-Semitism, you're getting more out of The Merchant of Venice. That's fine. But you can get something out of it without that kind of top-loading of information. So my boys and I, we finished watching Taming of the Shrew, 1980, um, TV version with John Cleese, if you don't mind, as as Patricio, and uh, okay, so I read it to him in advance, and then we watched it, and they absolutely loved it, and of course they would love it. And do you think they are picking up on the subtleties of domestic violence, of female empowerment, of education? No, of course not. They're liking it for different reasons, and you can get into these things at, at quite unquote a base level. You know, you don't have to understand everything, but what you do understand is something. And then as the years go on, you keep coming back to it, just like a game of cricket. Okay, ball hit, ball hit to the boundary, four runs. Okay, you understand that. And then as the game goes on, you start to understand more and more. And as you come back again and again, you start to understand when would you declare? Would you declare behind? You know, what would you do? So you can build these layers on top of it, not in a wanky sense of, oh, aren't we so clever, but in a sense of it's not like eating a tub of KFC where you eat it and then feel filthy. You know, it's something where you, you absolutely feel filthy, yeah, but you go back to it again and again, and each time you're seeing what you earlier saw and you're putting a little extra layer on top. Still going back to the old favourites, putting a little bit of extra something on top. So I guess in terms of uh, the opera, okay, so I, I like classical music since I was a lad, um, and my parents weren't interested in it, but, you know, you, you go to a library, you find some CDs, you listen to it, you get hooked on it. So uh, I thought, well, okay, I, I'm really interested in Bach and Beethoven. Um, I, I want the boys to have a full-blown uh, education. Um, but, say, listening to the St. Matthew Passion by Bach is pretty heavy going, you know, three hours heavy going stuff. So that's, I mean, that's one of my favorites, but let's not start them out on that. So how are you going to start them out? And I thought, okay, there's like stuff for kids, you know, and I'm not really interested in stuff for kids. But what about starting out with proper stuff but choosing it judiciously? So why not try uh, to start them out Rather than say, I don't know, Shostakovich Symphony Number no. Seven, why not try to start them out on something where there's some lighthearted laughter, where there's some costumes, where there's some sets, where there's some action, some drama. Okay, so it's not high drama, but okay, some sort of drama. And why not do this in a way where we can stop it every thirty minutes or so and say, okay, let's go back. Why do you think? The Queen of the Night is upset with Sarastro in the Magic Flute. Why? I mean, I don't know why. Okay, maybe I do know why, but why do you think? You know, listen to the first few bars of that song. You don't know what the words are yet, but automatically you can tell me, is this a sad song or a happy song? Why would it be sad? Okay, now we'll hit play. Let's go again. So then starting out with, say, the Magic Flute, Marriage of Figaro, starting out with things that are light, happy, um, sumptuous sets, uh, sparkling clothes, all the rest of it gets people hooked. Okay, and then we go into the serious stuff. You know, at some point I let it, let the cat out of the bag. I was trying to just have uh, lighthearted stuff. At some point, I said to the boys, "Look, look, um, Don Giovanni is probably my favourite opera of all time." And they said, "Oh, we better watch that next day." And I thought, "Oh dear, this is no good." I mean, Don Giovanni. There are there are proper, legitimate uh, interpretations that have the character range from, on the one hand, a kind of a a boyish rake who's caught up in the wrong circumstances, who's, you know, winking and smiling and kissing women, all the way down to a serial sex offender. So, you know, and, and anything in there is fair game in terms of how it wants to be interpreted. So I thought, ah, you know, um, they're a bit too early. I mean, there's nine and six now, a bit too early for that real deep end of the spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. So so I chose a version where it was up at the, up at the other end. Um, 
But then, you know, now we each Sunday we watch it for about an hour. We, we watch about 40 minutes worth, but it's about an hour because we have to stop. We have to ask questions. We have to go back. We have to then have discussions. Um, and we alternate between a serious and a funny one. And my wife, Di, has an integral role to play in this. She doesn't watch the opera. She realizes it's our thing. But she has probably the most pivotal role to play in that at Sunday dinner when we're sitting around, um, she is the one who asks for the summary from one of the boys. So one of the boys has to summarize what's going on. And then Di has to uh, ask questions. Like, well, who, who the hell is this Don Giovanni guy? You know, why do we care about him? And then the boys have to say things. And I say, ah, yes, but what, what about this? And they say, okay. And then we have these kind of ranking systems. Do you think this is better than that? How could you possibly compare La Scala to Seta by Rossini or One Act Wonder of Fun and Jalility with, say, something like Rigoletto where your heart gets torn in two at the very end? How could you compare those two? And to see the passion, you know, we Trojan males are a passion, passionate race. See the passion in their eyes. They're laughing when you're supposed to laugh and we're all crying when you're supposed to cry. And seeing the boys become men in this sense of being in touch with their emotions and saying, it's okay for someone to cry here. It's okay to feel a mixture of anger, admiration, sorrow for the same person at different times. It, 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 seeing them discuss that with each other and seeing the passion come out of them when they're discussing it is, well, it, it's exceptionally rewarding that they are now uh, – in touch with their emotions and on some sort of journey of growth. It's it it oh, I'm getting a bit choked up. It's it's absolutely touching to see that um, interplay of emotions and discussion. Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Justin. Stay safe.